Amen. Amen, church. You can be seated. Good morning and happy Easter to you. And it's so good to be together. Listen, we don't do this out of tradition or memory. Um, We do this because we have a God that is alive, very much alive. It's as alive as the person that is sitting next to you. And so we gather together to give him the honor and the praise and the worth that he and he alone deserves. And so welcome to Next Community Church, especially if you're a guest or a family member visiting or um, anybody who's just here for the first time, anybody online for the first time, we welcome you. We're glad you're here at Next Community Church. There's a little card right in front of you. If you want to just let us know you visited with us and fill this out, we've got a free gift we'll give to you up front. Just bring this up front and give it to one of our friendly people up there. And um, just our way of saying thank you for being here. And if there's anything that we can do for you, let us know. We'd be honored to do so. My name's Joe, one of the pastors here. And um, on behalf of everybody, welcome this Easter Sunday. Um, We have much to celebrate. And uh, I want to talk to you about last words. Um, Last words are important, right? When when somebody is getting ready to leave this world and to pass on to the next, um, the the last things that come out of their mouth is um, what's on their heart, what's what's on their mind, right? With all the the energy and the strength that they can muster to, to get those last words out, and I want to suggest to you today that there's never been more important last words than, than the three that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross, just as he was getting ready to pass from this world to the next. And that's going to be the basis of what we're going to talk about together this Easter morning. I want to look at them together with you. And they're found in John chapter 19. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, we'll put them on the screen. In John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross and he says, uh, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine... He said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Three words. It is finished. Powerful three words. Um, Except Jesus Jesus didn't say those three words. Right? Jesus didn't speak English. And and so um, we had to translate what he said into English. He actually said one word. And, and in the New Testament, written in Greek, it's one word. We translate it in, into three for, for English. I'm, you're gonna look, you came to Easter service to learn some Greek language, didn't you? This morning, I'm going to teach you some Greek, all right? Here's the Greek word. You can go ahead and put up that word. It's, it's tetelestai. Say it with me this morning. Tetelestai, right? There, you learned some Greek, okay? Tetelestai. It's a Greek word. It comes from the Greek verb teleo, which means to accomplish to finish, to bring to completion, all right? But this is, in a, this is in a different tense, which is how you take teleo and you get tetelestai. And uh, you're going to learn even more Greek this morning when I tell you about the tense. It it's kind of adds a, a pretty cool d- dynamic to it. But, but for now, just know it, it means to bring to completion, to accomplish. It's, it's a weighty word. It, it's the idea of of having a path in mind, a direction, a course set, putting your, your head down and finishing what you set out to do, right? What you set out to do, you accomplish, to telestai, right? It's, um, it's, that, it's that 22-year-old college student after going through school for 12 years and then four years of college, walking across that college stage, shaking the president's hand, Getting that diploma, a college student would put their hands in the air and say, Tetelestai, right? It is finished. I accomplished what I set out to do. 
or maybe you've had displeasure, I'm looking forward to it someday, is that when you sit down and you write that final check paying off that mortgage statement, right? After 30 years of paying it off, and then so you're going to send off that last check, and now you literally own the house that you're living in. You send off that check, and you would say, to Telestai, it is finished, right? What I set out to do, I accomplished. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. It doesn't just mean I got through it. It doesn't mean I survived. It means I did exactly what I set out to do, right? Um, what did Jesus set out to do? Remember, remember the night before? The night before he had his last meal with his 12 best friends? And Judas scurries off silently to go and betray him. And they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he gets his guys together and he says, all right, guys, uh, we're going to pray. You got to pray for me. He knows what's about to happen. He knows what's ahead of him. He knows the cross is ahead of him. And he, and he says, stay here while I go over here and pray. And he goes over and he prays and he comes back. And what does he find? Sleep. <laughs> I mean, how embarrassing would that have been, right? The last night of Jesus' life and, and the boss, Jesus, God comes back. And, and bust you because you fell asleep on the job praying. He says, could you guys not even pray for one hour? Come on, get up, pray, pray for me. And he says this, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Not because he was scared of, of the, the cross that laid heaven, because he knew that he was about to take on him, on the cross, the sins of every single person that ever has lived and ever will live upon him on the cross. And that, the weightiness of that. And so he goes over here and he prays and he leaves his guys again and he's praying. And, and in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke only, because Luke was actually a doctor, he was a clinical physician, Luke records this, that as he was praying, he was in such anguish that his sweat was drops of blood. He began to sweat blood. And he began to pray something that he knew was going to be a tetelestai finish. And he prayed that he would bring his father glory. And in John 17, it records this prayer. I just want to look at one little phrase of his prayer. It says this, John 17, verse 4, by completing the work you gave me to do. That was his prayer. Father, I want to bring you glory. He's sweating drops of blood because I want to finish what you gave me to do. Like, Jesus didn't just come down here just to be an example and a model of how to be a good person. That wasn't the work that God gave him to do. Hey, go down there, son. Live a perfect life for 30 years. Be nailed to a Roman cross. Rise again from there and just be an example. Now, there was a bigger purpose in mind. There was a bigger thing that the Son of God was trying to accomplish. And you can't miss it this Easter. Don't be fooled into thinking, well, Jesus was a good teacher. He was just a good rabbi. He was just a good model for us to follow. That wasn't what he meant when he said, it is finished. He had work that the Father gave him to do. And for thousands of years, the whole Old Testament was looking forward to it. The whole Old Testament was talking about the Savior, the Messiah, the Deliverer that was going to come. God's chosen Redeemer that was going to come and restore mankind back to God. And Jesus, taking on the sins of the entire world, stretched out his arms and said, Tetelestai, 
it is finished. It has unbelievable implications for you and I today. I told you there's something even more interesting. Can you, can you go back to that word, to tell us that word? Can you throw that up there? Um, here's, here's a little bit more, another little Greek nugget. You can share this with your family at Easter dinner this afternoon. It, it means, uh, it's in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense in Greek language is the past tense that has future implications, right? It is something that was accomplished in the past, but is going to have future implications. That's the perfect tense, and that's the tense that this verb is in. Something that is done, it is finished, but it has ongoing ramifications that impact so much about our lives today when you understand the truth of the Easter story. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time on. I want to give you this morning seven implications of because it is finished, this happens. It means this for you. Seven things. And so we got we to gotta go fast. I got 28 minutes to do seven things. That's four minutes apiece, all right? So we got four minutes apiece. So um, seven things. It has huge impl- impl- implications and ramifications of what Jesus said. So I'm going to give them to you. We're, if you want to write them down, you can write them down. I think they're write down worthy, but they're, some of them are long. You won't probably get it all in time. We're going to post them on our, uh, our social media page, Facebook and, and uh, Instagram tomorrow, so you can get them all there, okay? But let me give you the first one. Here we go. You ready? Because it is finished, here's the truth, your unpayable sin debt to God is paid in full by Jesus. Because it's finished, the debt that you and I, the sin debt that we owe to God, is already stamped, paid in full, because Jesus paid it for you, right? This is good news. This is really, really good news. As a matter of fact, back in those days, if, if you had a certificate of debt, when, when you borrowed money, they would, you would sign a certificate of debt, and they would have it, right? And then when it came time after you made payments, made payments, made payments, and then when it was done, they would take that certificate of debt, and you know what they would do? They'd stamp it. Do you know what they would stamp on it? Want to take a guess? To Telestai. That's what they would stamp on that paid in full. It is finished, right? And so the good news for you and I is every single one of us has a sin debt that has been accumulating, right? And it just keeps getting bigger. The longer you live, the longer the list goes. It's such a long list. It's an, it's an unpayable sin debt that we owe to God. And, and you, you, you try to, and this is kind of religiosity, you, you try and work it down, you try and work it off, but it keeps growing. It's unpayable. And then what you have that day is you stand before God. And, and, and all you have to do is to try and, well, God, here, let me show you my list of good things that I did. Well, I, I tried to go to church and I gave some money and... I've helped in ladies across the street, right? And, you can, and, and God goes, oh, that's, that's nice. Let me show you the list I've accumulated over your life of all the offenses. <laughs> right? Just, my arms aren't long enough to stretch it out for most of us. An unpayable sin debt that Jesus took on him on the cross. Colossians chapter 2 says this. And when you were dead in trespasses, dead, like spiritually dead, 
Uh, let me ask you a question. What can dead people do to save themselves? Anybody? Answer? Nothing. This is our condition. Every single person is born into this world spiritually bankrupt. We're just born spiritually poor, in debt, and it only gets bigger the longer you live. So the Bible calls that spiritual death. You're born spiritually dead unto God. You need to be made alive, which is why Jesus said these words that people mock Christians for today, but it's actually words that Jesus said. That's why you need to be born again, because everyone's born spiritually dead. So when you bring Jesus into your life, you're born Again, you're spiritually made alive. This is what the Bible says. As for you, when you were dead in trespasses, your sins, he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. That's good news this morning. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he's taken it away. What did he do with it? He nailed it to the cross. That's such good news. And so listen, truth number one this morning, because it is finished, the debt that you and I owe to God, that our sin, that we could never pay him back, Jesus goes, I got that one. I paid for that one, paid in full. So when that day comes, when you have Christ in your life, and God stands before you, and you stand before God, and he goes, Joe, what are you going to do about that? That's when Jesus steps in, because I invited him into my life. Jesus shows up and goes, Father, remember? I paid for all those. He goes, oh, that's right. Mm. Jesus stands there with me. Paid my debt. Unbelievable gift. Truth number two. Because it is finished, you are free from the impossible burden of having to earn God's love and God's acceptance. Although if you get this, this is going to be so freeing. This is the heart of the good news of the Bible this is the heart of the good news of the gospel, that, that you and I cannot earn or work for our own salvation. Every other world religion has at its core this tenet. You have to be good enough to earn that deity's approval or acceptance, or be good enough, and if you are good enough and you follow the tenets of that religion enough, then you earn some type of reward, paradise, eternal life, some type of heaven. Every other world religion is man climbing a spiritual ladder to achieve some type of reward. Only Christianity has our God coming down the ladder, living the life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we do deserve because we can't earn it ourselves. And so when you understand this truth that you cannot earn salvation, you cannot earn God's love because you already have it. This is such good news. Religion, and I'm using the word religion in a, in a negative sense right now, because the more that you read the Gospels of Jesus, you, you, you understand that Jesus is actually not after religion. He's not, he's not wanting 
you and doing your best effort in climbing some kind of spiritual ladder. He's actually not wanting religion. He's actually wanting a relationship with you where you truly open your heart to him, receive him into your life, and now live your life with him, not trying to earn his love because he's already given it to you. You just have to receive it. And so it, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. The people in the Bible that Jesus got the most mad at was the religious people the religious leaders, because they were teaching man everything about being good enough and, 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 and trying all these things apart from having a heart for God. And that's what Jesus is after, the whole thing. And, and so religion says, do this. And Jesus says, I've already done this. It is finished. Now just welcome me into your life. Um, you ever felt like you're not good enough? All right. And you feel like you're a spiritual failure? I've talked to so many people. When I was going through Bible college, I was landscaping um, seven days a week and, and um, worked with a lot of different guys and, in training to be a pastor. So I was really trying. And so that, that always kind of, you know, was the easy conversation that I'm the Bible college boy with all these other guys. And what, what does that even mean going to Bible college? And so I try to share my faith with them and tell them about Jesus, relationship with Jesus. And the answer was always, always, always the same. Oh, I, I, there's no way I can ever come back to church. The roof would fall in. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, that is such a misconception that you've got to clean yourself up before you can come back to God. It's the complete opposite. It's you come to God so he can make you clean. Because you can't clean yourself up enough. It's like saying, I'm so sick I can't go to the hospital yet. I got to get better first before I can go. That's, like, that's crazy talk. That's, that's what it's like when you think you've got to clean up your own act before you come back to God. You can't. You can't earn God's love. And that religion puts this, this burden on people. It's like a heavy burden. It's like this, this yoke of like religious duty. And, and, and you know you fail. And you just you walk around kind of with this spiritual guilt knowing what you should do, but you don't do it, and it's just a heavy burden. And then Jesus comes along, and in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. It's like, whoa, this is different. Yeah, I'm weary, I'm burdened. You're going you're gonna to give me spiritual rest? And then Jesus says this, Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you're going to find rest for your souls. Oh, this is good news. This is so refreshing. Jesus says, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why? He did the hard part. He did the suffering on the cross. He paid the guilt and the shame and the debt that we owed, and now you receive him by faith, and now you live life with him. That's a, that's a good yoke. This is what Jesus is saying. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't earn it because it's a gift. Right? The next verse I'm going to read you changed my life. When I was 14, 15 years old, I, I grew up in a, in a religious system where I was trying to climb the ladder. I, I, I was taught you got to be good. You got to get up and get a, be good. And, 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 and God's gonna, got this giant scale and, and he's going to kind of measure your good and your bad and the scale. If it's good this, this way, you go up. And if it's bad this way, you go down. And if you're kind of in the middle, you go to this holding ground over here and you hope people down here pray you out. And then you start reading the Bible and it's like, that, that ain't in, in, in there anywhere. No, no, nowhere. 
Let me tell you what is in there. This is freeing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith. God's given us grace. He gave us Jesus. Now you have faith in him. The verse goes on and says, this is not from yourselves. What? You don't earn it? No, it's not from yourselves. It's God's gift. Next verse. Not from works so that no one can boast. Right? So I've said this before. You know what conversation you're not going to hear in heaven? Hey, how'd you, how'd you get in? Oh, well, here's what I did. I went to church every Sunday. Oh, that's awesome. You're really good. How'd you get in? Well, you should know what I did. I, I helped my family through some of the darkest years that I did. I was, oh, that's great. That's how you get. How'd you get in? I wrote big checks to lots of charities. Oh, that's great. How, you know, you're not going to hear any of that. You're going to hear one answer to the question. How'd you get in? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> How'd you get in? <laughs> Jesus. How'd you get? Jesus. It's the only answer you're going to hear. Jesus, I accepted the free gift of Jesus. It is finished. Number three, we've got to go faster. Listen faster. We've got to go faster. All right, number three. Because it is finished, there is nothing. This is good news too. This is so, oh, this is so good. There is nothing you can ever do or fail to do that will cause God to leave you or stop loving you. This is such, such good news. Listen, because you can't earn it, you can't lose it. Because you didn't earn it in the first place. It's a gift. And so stop thinking that you earn God's love and approval. It's a, it's a gift. You can't lose what you didn't earn, right? This is so freeing. This is because, this is going to, maybe for some of you, this is going to blow your mind. God loving you really has nothing to do with you. He doesn't look down and be like, oh, you're pretty good. I love you more. Oh, you're, mm, I, I love you less. God's love for you has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with him and who he is. This is because God cannot not love. He is love. This is what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 4 says this. God is love. So he can't not love you. So his love for you doesn't depend on you. It's only squarely based on who he is. And so he cannot not love you. He's going to love you. If you're good or bad or in between, his love is not based on your behavior. This is so freeing. There's nothing you can do or fail to do that will cause God to stop loving you. God's love, verse 9, was revealed among us in this way. How did God show his love for us? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Do you ever feel like there's days, though, that God doesn't love you? Right? You ever have that feeling? It's like, God, come on, why? Why? We're going to talk about this in a little bit, how one of the enemy's great tactics is to get us to believe lies about God based upon our circumstances. Don't ever let your circumstances or your feelings dictate what you know to be true. God is love. And if you ever have those days where you wonder, God, do you really love me? Because it doesn't feel like it. Right? Your feelings will at times lead you astray. Be careful letting your feelings be the leader of your life. Feelings weren't meant to be the leader of your life. Truth was supposed to be the leader of your life. 
What's true about this? I know the Bible says God loves me. It sure doesn't seem like God is loving. What am I going to believe? Anytime that you have a doubt, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Remember the cross of Jesus. Anytime you wonder, God, do you love me? If you wear a cross, have, look at the cross and be reminded how much God loves you, that he sent his son, Jesus. The cross shouts to the world, I love you. And you can't earn it, and God will never take it away because it's done. It is finished. Jesus did what he set out to do, right? Um, your, your sin cannot outcover God's grace. You're not bigger than God's love. Your screw-ups is not bigger than God's grace and forgiveness. You can't outsin God's love coverage. That's good news this morning. And so, can I encourage you? Stop believing that you can lose God's love. Stop believing there's something that you can do or not do that will make God stop loving you. He can't. He won't. He is love. Number four, because it is finished, this is attached to this one. The sins that you can't forget, God doesn't remember. You know, you know those sins, right? The ones that, that only you know about, not even the person that's closest to you knows about, those secret sins, the sins maybe that you've done in the past that you just want to stay in the past, but they continue to haunt you, or maybe even those sins that are still fresh in your life today, but they're sins of the heart or sins of the mind that if anybody actually knew what you were thinking or what you were feeling, you'd be so embarrassed. And these sins kind of just, they weigh you down and they make you feel guilty. And then the enemy comes along and whispers to you about you. You call yourself a Christian. You say you believe in God. Look at you. You're a, you're a disgrace. What kind of Christian are you? The sins that you can't forget, God doesn't remember. This is what the enemy does. There's a, there's a nickname in the Bible for, for Satan. Satan has actually quite a few nicknames. And you give people nicknames often based upon their character traits, right? So someone's really big, hey, what's up, big guy? Or, you know, somebody's really, hey, slim. Or you give guys nicknames based upon, usually guys can be rough with other guys. And so... Um, Satan has nicknames based upon his character traits. You know what one of his nicknames is? The accuser of the brothers and sisters. And this is what he loves to do. He loves to accuse you about how bad you are. And then he loves to go to God and be like, God, look at you. Look at what he just thought. God, look at what he's doing. Look at what nobody knows about. But look, look, God, and he's, he's, he's your son. He's your child. Accuser. There's a verse in the Bible that talks about in the end times, when God is bringing everything into completion, that one of Satan's last attempts is going to be to go to God and start accusing people. It's found in the book of Revelation. Here's what it says. It says, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ has now come because... The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night 
has been thrown down. So in the end, he's going to be thrown down. But he's going to make this, this attempt where he's coming before God and he's going to bring accusations about every single one of you before God. The accuser of the brethren. And here's what I found that it does often to people, especially in church, is it paralyzes you. And I hear it all the time. Because instead of stepping up in faith and growing and letting God use you to serve others or to be a leader in a ministry or to kind of even go out and, and, and sh- let your light shine, your love shine, you, you, you know the bad things about you and the enemy comes to you and speaks to the bad and then you, you feel paralyzed and you, you get overwhelmed with guilt and shame and, and then you have this thought, I, I can't do that. I'm not good enough to do. I'll never be able to do that. And instead of stretching by faith, you shrink back in guilt. And and guilt is a powerful emotion. And the enemy loves to trap people in guilt and shame and paralyze Christians. And you need to know this. You need to know this truth. And he uses this, the sins that we can't forget, God doesn't remember. God will never put guilt on you. You want to know why God will never put guilt on you? Because Jesus already paid for your guilt. It's already been paid for. That's, it is finished. On the cross, Jesus paid for all of your guilt. So God is not a believer. This is even right in our legal system of double jeopardy. Like you're not going to be able to be accused of the same crime twice. So every sin that I've ever committed and will commit has been put on Jesus. So when that day comes, when I stand before God, if I am in Jesus and I've said yes to the gift and and the enemy's going to go, look at this list. And then Jesus is going to be there and be like, yep, I already paid for that. So Joe's not going to pay for that now, because I already paid for that on the cross. And God's, God's, God's like, what list? You're like, where are you getting this from? I'll, Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. <laughs> so, like, don't walk around thinking you are your sin. God removes that from you as far as the east is from the west. Where does it go? On Jesus, on the cross, paid for, nailed to the cross, dead, so that now in Christ you can live. Oh, this is such good news. Number five, because it is finished, who, this is a long one, follow me, I'm going to read it twice, because we got, we got, we, the enemy also wants to confuse you about who you are. Who you ultimately are has nothing to do with you. Your identity is firmly anchored in Jesus. His performance, not yours. His record, not yours. You are not what you do or don't do. You are what Jesus has done for you. All right? This is important to understand that you are not defined by your worst moments or your greatest successes. Right? You're, you're, you're not defined by your struggles or your accomplishments, or your weaknesses, or your strengths. You're not defined by what you do. One of the enemy's great lies is to get people to believe you are what you do. Um, I was talking about this with every Saturday morning, I meet with a couple of guys, and we have a discipleship time, Bible study time. And we were talking about this yesterday, how the tendency, it seems like especially for guys, is that we associate our identity by what you do, right? We are what we do. 
And, uh, I mean, right, you go to any party and, and, you know, guys standing around awkwardly and you got three guys in the corner and it, does, it takes 30 seconds for a guy. What's the conversation go to? Well, what do you do? Well, what do you do? Right? Why? Because that's, that's what we know how to talk about. But why? Because we associate who we are with what we do. And then the enemy comes along and says, well, what you do is you're, you're, you're a sinner. You're a mess up. You're, you're a failure. You're a spiritual loser. And so then you carry that with you because you think you are what you do. And you get, we get our identity all backwards because you are not what you do. You, listen, you are who you belong to. That's your identity. And, and, and so let me read you a verse and then I'll use an analogy and we'll move on to the, to the next point. John chapter 1 says this. This is such good news. But to all who did receive him. Again, remember, this is a gift. You have to receive Jesus. To all who did receive them, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name. So listen, when you say no to religiosity and yes to relationship with Jesus, God does, he signs an adoption paper where you now are brought into the family of God. You become a child, a son, or a daughter of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Based upon his payment on the cross, God brings you into the family, and now he looks at you as a son or daughter. And, and if you're a parent in here, you're going to get this instantly. Your love for your son or daughter, if you're a good parent, I'll, I'll clarify. Your love for your son or daughter has nothing to do with their grades in school or how good they are that day. Now, listen, your enjoyment of them has something to do with how they behave, and that's true with God. Our enjoyment of our relationship with him is based upon kind of if we're following him or not. He's the parent, we're the kid. But as a parent, my love for my two kids has nothing to do with how they perform on the football field on Friday night has nothing to do with the grades that they bring home. I'd love for them. Nothing will ever stop me from loving them. Why? Is it because of how they act? No, it's because of who they are. They're mine. And I will always love them, no matter what. And that's what any good parent will do. And that's what our Heavenly Father will do. No matter what, it's not going to stop Him from loving you. His love is not based on your behavior. It's not based on the grades that you bring home or your performance at your job or anything. It's based upon your identity. What's your identity? I'm a son or a daughter of God, and nothing can change that. Your sin doesn't make God unsign the adoption papers. You're good today? All right, you're in the family. You're bad today? You're out. You got... That's not how God works. This is good news. Stop basing your identity in what you do. Rather, base your identity in whose you are. Number six, because it is finished, you can, in, this is going to help some of you, you can endure rejection from others because you will never have to endure rejection from God. You get this? Because God loves you unconditionally, that means, listen, you can be freed up from needing everybody else to like you. 
And even if you're a rough, tough guy, we're like, oh, I don't care what people think about me. Every single person deep down inside has a desire to be liked and loved. And a lot of times, if it's really a struggle, you will let that issue control you. We, we, we call it people-pleasing, our fear of man. And our lives are controlled based upon what we think others think of us. And then we act and live and decide based upon everybody. And, and, and you live with this kind of fear of man. And you become a people pleaser. And you're trying to get something that from some people you're never going to get. Which is why some people just spin out of control. Because they're living for the approval or the pleasing of people that they're never going to get. When they've already got it from the one that matters most. And so when you understand when Jesus spread out his hands and says, it is finished. In that when you are in Christ, you have everything that you need from God. It frees you up to receive and say, I don't need anything from anybody else. Even though deep down inside, we all have that, right? We all have that desire to want to be liked. Like, I, w- I want you to like me. I want you to like this. Is this, is this okay? Is this, going, is this going good? Do you like this talk? Do you like this Easter service? We, we like, right? Everybody, everybody wants everybody to like what they're But when you know that you already have the like and the love of the one that matters most, it frees you up to just be okay, not even being okay. And I don't have to try to get you to pretend I'm okay when I'm not okay so that you think I'm okay. Because God already knows I'm not okay, and he loves me in my not okayness. Okay? (laughs) This will set you free. Romans 8.31 says this, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us, so I'm okay. And I don't have to try and live in a way that makes you think I'm better than I am. Because I'm getting what I need from him, and if you don't think I'm okay, I'm okay. Because I know that he loves me as I am. So I'm freely, I'm able to admit I'm wrong. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to be like, I can say I'm sorry because I know I'm not okay. And I don't have to act like I'm right all the time. This is going to free some of you up to having to be right all the time and to win all the time. Because it's finished, you can endure rejection from others because you never have to endure rejection from God. And here's the last one. Because it is finished, you can love others without needing them to love you back because all the love you need, you already have. This is, this, is, this is important. This is important, especially today in what's going on in our world, in our culture, where things are so divisive and so angry and, and hatred is rising and everything seems to just be spinning out of control in the world Who is going to bring hope and love to the world if it is not going to be the people that belong to the one who is love, who else is going to do it? And so when you know that you have God's love, it enables you to then bring that love to the world that so desperately needs this love. And you can love others freely without expecting anything in return. Can anybody think of somebody that came and brought love into the world without expecting anything in return? Hmm, who did that? 
seems to me like that's one of the most Jesus-like things that we can do, is to love our world without needing the world to love us back because I already got the love that I need from the Father. And the love that I'm going to give to the world is going to come from the love from the Father. And this is so important. Remember, God is love. And so for some of you, the biggest challenge that I can maybe give to you is that you and I need to learn to receive that love every day. You need to learn to just sit with that love receive that love, believe that love, bask in that love, enjoy that love, be filled up with that love, that there's so much in you that then when you go out into the world and somebody bumps into you, love spills out of you, not anger. Love spills out of you, not hatred. Love spills out of you. Not sarcasm. Love Here's why, 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a, say it with me church, that's the Bible calling you a liar. Say you love God, but you hate people, oh, I hate people. You don't love God then, God says in his word. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so, three of the most powerful words, it is finished. I've given you seven implications of that. There are so many more. But here's, here's the catch. And there is a catch. And the catch is this. Every single thing that I just said about these seven things is not true for you unless you've received the free gift of Jesus Christ into your life. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then you are over here on your own with a bunch of religiosity trying to climb the ladder to heaven and you will fail and fall short. And that day will come when you stand before God and he's going to go, why should I let you in? And you're going to pull up your list of good things. And he's going to pull up your list of bad things. Because it's only, he only separates your sins as far as the east from the west. As if you've given them to Jesus on the cross. And he's going to be like, you fail. You fall short. And this is only true if you have Jesus Christ in your life. And I say this all the time in this church. And I'll say it again this morning. Is you have to invite him into your life. Because Jesus is a gentleman. And he waits to be invited. He won't come in. He won't force himself into your life. He wants to be wanted. He waits to be invited. And only you have the invitation. When I was 14, 15 years old, this all made sense to me. I had a bunch of religion. I didn't have Jesus. I had religion. I didn't have Jesus. And it was at a church youth group where at the very end, just like this, the guy up front, just like I'm about to do, said, if you want Jesus tonight, I'm going to offer you Jesus. You can just say this prayer. And you mean it. It's not some magic prayer. It's not some magic. You get in your heart. This is, this is what you're putting your faith in. You're putting all of your faith apples in Jesus' basket. And if you want to do that, I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. I'm just going to ask everyone to close your eyes and pray. And you just do this. You pray, Jesus, 
I'm inviting you into my life today. Come and save me. I know I can't save myself. Forgive me for my sins. I accept your gift of salvation. Jesus, I want you in my life. I need to be born again, spiritually. Come, Jesus. Save my life. I need you. I love you. If you did that and you said yes to Jesus Christ, it's the most important decision you will ever make in your life. It has eternal consequences. We'd love to know. There's a card in front of you. Would you fill out that card? And at the end of the service, would you either give it to me or just you can put it in our offering box, which is right back there, a little black box next to the door, or give it to somebody up front, and we'll just send you an email. We just want to say congratulations, and we want to help you with the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Tetelestai, it is finished. So let's stand and let's close and worship this Jesus.